1: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
3: Hey, everyone, I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm Mr. Raquel. Welcome back to Essential Voices. So what's up this week, Wilmer? Anything spooky?
0: (laughs) Well, we love stories here at Essential Voices, don't we, Mr.? You love my stories, right? Duh! That's what we're here to do.
3: Share stories. Sometimes you tell me stories, sometimes I tell you stories, and sometimes we tell ghost stories. I mean, come on, it's Halloween week.
0: Yeah. Are you trying to get me to do the uh, Monster Mash with you, Mr.? Is that what's going on over here?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know I'd love to do the Monster Mash with you, but... We also spend a lot of time processing and discussing current events on the show, which is kind of what I think we should be doing instead of the Monster Mash.
0: Sure. But let's just agree that Monster Mash deserves its own episode. So uh, just putting that on the calendar (laughs) for our season finale. (laughs) But no, seriously, we're only able to process and discuss current events on the show thanks to the tireless work of responsible journalists who prioritize the distribution of fair and accurate information.
3: Exactly. And like all essential work, journalism in all shapes and forms has totally been essential for centuries. But the past few years have also seen an uptick in the spreading of misinformation on places like Facebook and Twitter, making reliable journalism all the more vital. We've relied on accurate reporting for updates on the pandemic, making the work quite literally a matter of life or death.
0: True. And then when you think about it, You hear all about journalists getting basically attacked online just for trying to tell the truth. And it makes me wonder what's really going on with our essential journalists in this country.
3: We're on the same page there, Wilmer. So today we're going to hear from essential worker Ashton Pittman, a journalist at the Mississippi Free Press. Throughout the past two years, he's worked hard to report accurately on the pandemic and was also on the ground covering the Black Lives Matter protests in Mississippi. After that, we'll have a roundtable with the host of the podcast In the Thick and legendary journalists in their own right, Maria Hinojosa and Julio Ricardo Varela. Maria is a longtime anchor of Latino USA on NPR and also founded the Futuro Media Group, which produces In the Thick, as well as an amazing program that Julio runs called Latino Rebels. Go check them out.
0: I can't wait. I mean, who doesn't think of Maria and Julio when they think of incredibly inspiring Latinos in journalism? So let's dive in. Ashton's story starts right now.
4: My name is Ashton Pittman, and I'm calling from Columbia, Mississippi.
0: Great, Ashton. Well, thank you very much for having this conversation with me. You know, maybe you can tell me a little bit about how you were inspired to become a journalist.
4: For me, I've always just loved writing, But I was 11 years old when 9-11 happened, or I was 12. I just turned 12, I think. And I was also 10 or 11 at the time of the 2000 election. I think those two events really inspired a lot of my interest in current events. And when I was in college, I was invited in my freshman year to be on the newspaper staff. And I then decided that I would just go for journalism. So I joined the journalism program at the University of Southern Mississippi, And, you know, as one of my classes, we had to write a kind of a news blog. So I started blogging for the class. And that was something I just kept doing. Even after the class was over, I I kept writing on it. And just over the course of of doing that, I uh, broke a few stories with it that got picked up. And I remember waking up one day and being absolutely just shocked that Rachel Maddow of MSNBC had retweeted one of my blog posts. And so for me, I just realized that With journalism, you know, I could actually have an impact, and I could have an impact in a place like Mississippi. The next thing I knew, I was working for the Jackson Free Press and, you know, just doing these stories on systemic racism and gender inequality and LGBTQ issues in Mississippi. And towards the end of 2019, I learned that my editor, Donna Latch, he was uh, working with Kimberly Griffin, who I met through the Jackson Free Press because she works there that they were starting a new publication, which is the Mississippi Free Press, and it's a nonprofit. It's separate from the Jackson Free Press, and that was supposed to launch in the summer of 2020, but the pandemic hit, and a few days after its arrival in March 2020, I was talking to Donna, and she told me, um, you know, I think we should just go ahead and launch. I think people need our reporting right now. Within a few days, we had a makeshift website up uh, just several days after the pandemic arrived here, and... That's a very short rundown of my story when it comes to journalism. But that's how I got to the Mississippi Free Press.
0: That's unbelievable. I wonder if, you know, being in a blue dot in a red state as a journalist must have brought some challenges too. So what are some of those challenges that you faced as a journalist?
4: Jackson is definitely a blue dot in Mississippi. You know, for us at the Mississippi Free Press, I think it's kind of really important to not be partisan. And what I mean by that is I don't mean, you know, that we report both sides are equal or anything like that. What I mean is that is that our mission isn't about partisanship. We're gonna tell the truth about the people in power. Right now, all the people in power are Republicans, and we believe in holding the people in power to account. If it was Democrats in power, we would be holding them accountable too, because the last time Democrats were in power was 20 years ago. Democrats controlled the governorship, the House, the Senate of the state, and yet 20 years ago, Mississippi was still Dead last, first in poverty, dead last in education, healthcare. So for us, it's a lot more about people than politics. And, you know, I think we get attacked a lot as being liberals because that's one of the biggest insults you can throw out here. But all we're doing is just asking questions that traditionally haven't been asked, whether it's because the older media was more conservative or it's because older media was just scared of losing advertisers. I think all of those things have been a factor.
0: Right. That was the biggest thing because the advertisers really kind of dictated your ability to appeal to whatever market kept the light on. I think that that was a generation and where they felt that the audience probably wanted to hear a certain perspective about America that was not necessarily what was going on in our neighborhoods. Do you feel like those are the stories that you gravitate towards as a journalist?
4: Yeah, because... I think there's a lot of people in the country that have this idea of Mississippi, this stereotype, but this is the blackest state in the country. We have to talk about the people that are underrepresented. Mississippi has the highest proportion of LGBTQ families that are raising children of any state in the country. Inside Mississippi and outside Mississippi, they've got to stop writing so many people out of the narrative. So that's one thing we really want to do is to make sure that when we talk about Mississippi, we mean Hispanic Mississippians and Black Mississippians and LGBTQ Mississippians and just so many people that traditionally have just been left out of any discussion.
0: All of a sudden you get introduced to this pandemic. How do things at work change for you? And how about at home, too?
4: So like I said, you know, we weren't planning to launch the Mississippi Free Press until closer to summer 2020. So... When the pandemic hit, we all decided instead of you know pushing our launch day back further, that we were just going to throw up a makeshift website because we didn't have our website ready yet or anything, and we were just going to start reporting at home. I actually have my ninety-year-old um, grandmother and my mom, who's sixty-four, and she has diabetes, that live with us. So for me, I locked my house down. <laughs> then a few days after doing that, I start this job. We set up an office space in my basement. So I'm spending a lot of time in the house uh, with the family, working. I'm not going out on assignment for a while. Uh, And that lasted probably through March and April. But then in May, we had the death of George Floyd. And that's when I started going back out again into the field. And I started just covering Black Lives Matter protests because they were just everywhere in Mississippi. And, you know, kind of just navigating, you know, is it safe to walk through a crowd with a mask outdoors? Because at the time, I don't think we knew how safe it was or wasn't outdoors. You know, it was kind of scary at first because I really didn't know and I didn't want to bring anything back to my uh, vulnerable family members. Like everyone else, we were just learning as things developed and changing our strategies and the way that we handled things just based on the information we were getting.
0: There's a ton of misinformation about the pandemic and vaccinations among other topics, right? So as a journalist, what steps did you take to address this?
4: It's been a serious challenge. I think throughout the pandemic, I have tried to do everything I can to convince as many people as possible that they should listen to what the medical experts are saying, what the medical science says. You know, I've tried to learn myself before I speak to make sure that what I'm telling people if they ask me or if I'm reporting it is correct. And there's been a lot of frustration for me because I feel like, especially last year, when again, I was the only full-time reporter, there was a lot of frustration because I felt like I was spending so much time making sure that I knew what I was putting out there was correct. And then I would log on to Facebook and I would see a friend or family member spreading, you know, misinformation. There was a while there where I would spend a lot of time just going back and forth with people, trying to convince them. But I, I think eventually I've kind of got to a place where I can tell the difference between someone who is misinformed and is willing to listen and people who just honestly want to misinform others. Because there are some people who just have no interest in learning or being told that they're wrong. And some of that's for political reasons. And some of it's because conspiracy theories can be really attractive to people.
0: What do you do personally to take care of your own mental health? You think about the frustration or maybe the energy or the trauma you may be experiencing with you trying to tell the truth and broadcast and write things that are critically important for the community. And then the backlash of individuals, that are probably coming after you as well. So how do you feel about that?
4: I know it's something a lot of journalists have dealt with. For me, especially last year, when all of this was new and when there were so few of us in the early days of the Mississippi Free Press, there were several times where I found myself just getting really down and really uh, not just frustrated, but almost depressed. I felt like, uh, you know, I was screaming into a void often. And, you know, there have been times where it's just been, it's just been heartbreaking. There was someone that I spent time with over the past year arguing with first about masks and later about vaccines. And I had not heard from him in a while. But in June, I saw tweets start popping up with uh, screenshots of a tweet that he had sent, I think, in May or sometime saying he wasn't getting vaccinated and he didn't trust the vaccine. And people were sharing this tweet because he had died in the month since. Just seeing that and realizing this is a man that I've tried to convince repeatedly, it it made me sick. And then I saw tweets from his daughter, who it turned out she had also tried and tried to convince him to get vaccinated. It's heart-wrenching. But for me, there's also this part of it that's like, you know, if his own daughter couldn't convince him, then I wasn't going to convince him either. I really had to just kind of try to separate as much as I can my emotional and personal investment and try to pour that into my words instead of letting it just consume me. I try to just do journalism in a way that my passion and my feelings about these things come across. People tell me sometimes, I can tell you care from the way you report these stories. And I try to channel those feelings into that now because otherwise they really can consume you because it does start to just feel like you're screaming into a void and all the things you're doing are just having no impact. But also know that's not true because I've had people just out of the blue tell me, you know, months ago you you wrote something or you tweeted something and I got vaccinated because of it, or I got a loved one vaccinated. So I know I'm having an impact. And I try to just remember that that people all throughout this pandemic have learned things because of my journalism. And that's what I tell other journalists that get upset about this, is that just know you're having an impact. You're not gonna hear from 99.9% 99.9% at least are the people you have an impact on and that learn something from you, but you are having an impact. And just hold on to that when it starts to feel like you're screaming into the void.
0: How do you feel like we as a community can support, whether it's the amplification, whether it's the engagement, the subscription, but ultimately how can we support some of the positivity that you're spreading with some of your journalism?
4: As I've said before, we're a nonprofit and there's no paywalls. So we put our journalism out free. So for us, you know, we rely on donors, uh, small donors. We actually just yesterday surpassed 1,000 unique donors since we began. That's the number one tangible way to support what we're doing because it allows us to hire more journalists and gives the rest of us a little time to breathe between stories, which I needed really badly last year. But of course, like you said, amplifying our stories, sharing our stories. Yeah, you know, The most gratifying thing and the thing that's helped me not go into dark places when it just got really hard has been just all the love from the community. And by that, I mean all across the country. It's not just Mississippi. We have have so many supporters across the nation and some across the world. And I've had people who have never been to Mississippi tell me that because of what we do, they care about Mississippi now. Or that they read a story about something going on in Mississippi and it made them examine what's going on in their own state or their own hometown. And you know that's just as much our mission as Mississippi, because I think Mississippi in a lot of ways is a mirror to America. I think it's really easy to dismiss us, but anything that's happening in Mississippi, I know we're number 50 in a lot of things, but anything that's happening in Mississippi is happening in the rest of America at some point. So it's just been really great to see people learn about Mississippi, but also learn about where they're from too.
0: What messages would you like to leave for those future journalists?
4: We have enough people that are obsessed with politics and media. We need more people who have a passion for people. That's just key to me is put people first and hold the powerful to account. Don't go into this if you want to have access to powerful people, because you can do that. You can have access to powerful people, but you're not going to do great journalism. So people first. That's my main advice is make sure that you have a passion for people and for telling people's stories and for uplifting them, not people in power.
0: Amazing, Ashton, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate the light that you brought to this conversation and excited to support you in the future and make sure that everyone knows you know, how important it is, the role that you play for the community and for the people that you speak on behalf of. You know, So thank you again.
4: Thank you so much.
0: I'm so happy we got to talk to Ashton, not just because he is an amazing journalist, but because he also gives such important insight to a part of the country that, as he points out, is very easily stereotyped. As he mentioned at the end of his story, there's so much we can learn about Mississippi and apply to where we live, even outside of Mississippi.
3: Yeah, exactly. And to our listeners in Mississippi, we're so stoked that we got to learn more about your state. I also really appreciate Ashton's people-first approach on his journalism, focusing on the stories and the storytellers. The only way we're going to learn true and accurate information about the world around us is if we step back and listen first.
0: And speaking of listening, when we get back, we'll be doing the Monster Mash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You don't have the rights for that. Uh, we'll talk and learn with Maria Enojosa and Julio Ricardo Varela.
2: Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I bet you're smart. Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat.
3: We're here today in conversation with Maria Hinojosa from Latino USA on NPR and founder of the Futuro Media Group, and Julio Ricardo Varela, also from Futuro Media and from Latino Rebels. Maria and Julio, we're so excited to have you today. Really excited for today's conversation. Wilmer, what have we got cooking up?
0: First of all, welcome. Thank you so much for being part of Essential Voices. Um, What are your reactions to Ashton's story? And maybe we'll start with you, Maria.
5: Well, I am like, go Ashton. I mean, for me, he is representative of everything that gives me hope about journalism, essentially self-funded journalism, dedicated to being of service, right? So it's not about elevating himself or about making money. It's about really doing this essential work. And Having been recently in Mississippi and at the time when it was on fire in terms of COVID and the Delta variant, Ashton is right. There is desperate need for trustworthy information in a place like Mississippi. So I'm just like, oh, Ashton, you have just given me hope. I love that he never stopped, just like we did, because that's what we do. This is our job. And we love it. And you can feel that love for being a journalist in Ashton's voice. And I think that's what kind of makes us understand that we are essential.
3: Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that, Maria. And what about for you, Julio?
6: One of the things that struck me, what Maria said, and about what Ashton said, was this notion of the mission, that the mission is bigger than anybody else. And if you think about it as an individual, as much as people think about journalism, they think about the bigger voices in the media, but it's not a lucrative profession. It, it really isn't. So it, it has to be mission-driven. And obviously hearing Ashton's story, he, he's also working in a nonprofit, which is what Maria founded with Little Media 11 years ago. And I've had the privilege to be working with Maria since 2014 and being her co-host on In the Thick and also on Latino USA. And you know, when we were both listening to this, uh, in my head, I'm like, This is exactly what we do. Not only did we send Maria down to Mississippi this year, but we were there a year after the immigration raids and the chicken processing plants. And Maria was down there. And we also did a live in the thick show with Mississippi voices who were saying the same things that Ashton was saying. And what's really important is when you look at a state like Mississippi, it is a media desert, there are not a lot of opportunities for independent voices to be there. So anyone that begins to sort of plant the seeds to inform the community the right way, which is what Ashton is doing, is adding such immense value because the people, we were in Jackson, right? So, you you know, we were in the blue dot and the level of people and genuine compassion and genuine curiosity for what is going on and the history of resistance in Mississippi is all connected so go Ashton, keep doing it. I love the fact also that they said, hey, this is free. We want to give this, this is a value to the community. And that's a lot of what we do at Futuro Media. We don't want to hide behind the work that we're doing. So um, we believe in the mission and and it's great to hear someone else who's essential saying the same thing.
3: Wow, thanks so much for saying that Julio, for sharing your thoughts. And, you know, both of you right now are talking about the power of sharing what might be considered, to use your words from earlier, untold stories, which makes Ashton's reporting all the more crucial in a place that both he and and you both are considering to be more or less a media desert. And right now feels like such a unique time for journalism, and especially journalism that's centered around storytelling, honoring the folks who are sharing their stories, and making sure that the mic is being given to folks in places like Mississippi. And both of you have been journalists for a long time, spearheading incredible journalism and political initiatives by Latin folks and folks of color. For you, Maria, you created Futuro Media and Latino USA decades ago, but you created these programs out of a need because they didn't exist from the beginning, which is just one of many structural issues when providing ethical and inclusive journalism, especially when this means not sharing stories by and for Black and brown communities. So for you, Maria, and Julio, feel free to jump in after, what was missing from, let's you know say, more traditional journalism when Latino USA first started?
5: That's a deep question. Right? <laughs> Sit back. Oh well, let's see. <laughs> Look, the truth is, is that Latino USA and even my hiring at NPR as the first Latina correspondent did not happen in a vacuum. It did not happen of just like oh, blip. Let's make this happen. It was actually a highly politicized moment. Why? I think it was in the 1980s that actually Time magazine may have declared it like the Decade of the Hispanic. It may have been something to do with the fact that Ronald Reagan in 1986 did push through the Immigration Reform and Control Act, which meant that three million people were able to become legalized. Right. The path to citizenship. And so, a lot of people were like, "Oh my God, man! There were all these Latinos. Like, they're really here and they're staying. You know, like, what's this?" And and people like Maria Amelia Martin, um, who was a generation ahead of me, were like, "We have to be in public media. We have to be in public media because public media is independent. It's free. We have to be there." And so she actually went to members of Congress and was saying, "You know, if we don't have any Latino Latina voices on NPR reporting." And it's, you know, the 1990s, we have a problem. So there has been a long history of activism of Latinos and Latinas in particular around issues and access to media. People forget that in the 1970s here in New York City, the Young Lords and allies took over Channel 13, the public television station here, because they didn't have any Latinos on the air. So... The thing is, is that when we formed Latino USA in 1993, what was really interesting is that everybody was like, oh, my God, isn't that cute? Oh, my God. The Latinos wanted to have like a little show for themselves. Oh, that's so adorable. It's probably going to last like three years. Oh, my God. they are so cute.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm wondering what that person looks like that talks like that. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I, love that. Wait a I love that. You know, so yes, I was trying to get that going. But anyway, here's the last laugh. Who's having the last laugh? Latino USA in the year 2023 will be on the air year 30 years. And we've been documenting this. And I guess, you know, if you look at the historical record, ah, what's sad is that, you know, if we had to fight for visibility in the 80s and 90s, And at least we achieved some visibility. What we are now having to do is to deconstruct a narrative that is false about who we are. So we went from being invisible to hyper visible. But now la gente is like, bueno, so like, when did you cross the border? And did you climb over the wall? And is your family MS 13? And are you drug dealers? And you're just like, what? You know, and that we did not create. We did not create that.
3: Yeah. Wow, Maria, you're so right. We did not create that narrative. And something else to add to this creation of the false Latinx narrative and negative media portrayal is the pandemic and misinformation being spread by so many media sources. You know, throughout the pandemic, I turned to my favorite, what I consider to be reliable news programs and podcasts, among other outlets, for factual, accurate reporting and and journalism based on storytelling to make sure I knew it was happening, not just in my community, but all around the world. These last two years have been a time for journalism to be at its most reliable, and yet the spread of misinformation has been ablaze like wildfires on Facebook and Twitter, all over the place.
6: That's what's being missed, Mr. because when people talk about the disinformation, specifically in communities where Spanish is the dominant language in this country, and even indigenous languages, I mean, in places like Mississippi, where Spanish is a second language to their indigenous language, is the lack of expertise from a journalistic angle in those languages. So everyone talks about English and misinformation and Facebook and all that, yada, 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 and, you know, we're blocking anti-vax videos and everything, and then... Here I am, even up here in Medford, Massachusetts, I'm I'm recording out of Boston. There's an evangelical who has like thousands and thousands and thousands of followers, says things in Spanish about how the vaccine is going to like, and that's in Spanish. And no one's checking that. I mean, mm-hmm. he's not getting banned because the gatekeepers are only going to want to do what they can do so they can look good in, in like news media, but they're not connecting to like Underrepresented communities. And then we're in a very unfair position because, again, going back to how people view us as journalists, we have as much impact as the Washington Post and the New York Times and other major organizations. But because we are ethnic media, we're not seen as like the mainstream. When Mm -hmm. in fact, if you look at the history of quote unquote ethnic media in the United States, those are the truth tellers. Frederick Douglass. Hello, else? Frederick Douglass. You Douglas. know, yeah. I mean, there is a truth here that has always been part of the American way of journalism, and that's where we need to elevate and amplify those voices. And don't get me started about like Miami talk radio and misinformation, because <laughs> yeah. you want to talk about like all this misinformation about vaccinations um, and and COVID and Florida. I mean, it, it's an industry, and no one's checking them. And right. one of our colleagues, one of our friends, who's not a colleague, but a good friend, pa- uh, Paola Ramos, did a really great piece of advice mm-hmm. about that information in Spanish that I always cite because it's very li- there's very little reporting about it. We'll be right back after
0: this break.
1: I often get asked why I'm such a big fan of wrestling, and it's all thanks to my grandma. Growing up, we would watch matches together sharing memories and revisiting wrestling's greatest moments. And with State Farm's support of the Michael Turra Podcast Network, I get to do just that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Listen to new episodes of your favorite Michael Turra shows wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for or the perfect table.
0: Welcome back to Essential Voices.
3: So what were you doing at Futuro Media with your journalism to combat this misinformation that was spreading? And let's start with you, Maria.
5: Very early on, first, I got COVID in March of 2020. So very early on, we were kind of dealing with it up close and personal. And I was actually documenting my own story. I was hearing from my students. I'm a professor at Barnard College, my alma mater, because, you know, I'm I'm Mexican. I have 16 jobs. So one of them is being a professor. <laughs> <laughs> um you know I was hearing from my students who are first gen, you know their parents were losing their jobs, they were getting sick. So we were documenting the reality as it was happening because if the epicenter of the pandemic is in Queens and the South yeah. Bronx, hello. Who's there? Yeah. And then at the same time, I have to be very honest, I did have vaccine apprehension at the very beginning because I was terrified of feeling the symptoms again. And so I was very public about what I was experiencing. Now, of course, I'm very lucky. I'm incredibly lucky because I was like, well, I'm feeling vaccine apprehension. Who can talk me down to about this? And it's like, "Uh, Dr. Fauci. It's like, "Okay, get Dr. (laughs) Fauci on the phone. We did. We got (laughs) we got Dr. Fauci. And so, you know, Dr. Fauci was able to explain to me, but I felt it was very important that I do speak about my apprehension. Mi preocupación, that I didn't want to feel sick again, that, oh my God, I was scared. And then when I did go to get the vaccine, the telling of the story, which was actually very beautiful because the person who put the shot in my arm in an old grammar school in the South Bronx was a nurse from Ghana, an immigrant just like myself, who saw that I was crying, I was so scared. And she just said, this is your freedom shot. This is your freedom shot. And then I just was like, Harriet Tubman. I don't know, it just like it clicked. I was like, this is freedom. And so I documented all of that in order to be hyper intimate in my life and in our lives, uh, as you know, many of my colleagues in Futuro, because one of our colleagues told the story of losing three members of her family, indigenous yeah. members of her family. So we have fought that misinformation by doing what we do all the time, which is telling the truth and being super transparent yeah. and super honest.
0: And putting yourself in the story, right? I mean, go ahead, Julia. Sorry. Yeah, we were just saying we tell the human stories. I mean, not only did we look
6: at Queens in the South Bronx, but like Maria said, the story of Lily and, and her family members, you know, out of Chicago. But also, you know, I'm based in Boston and I noticed that the epicenter was, you know, right outside of Boston, a, a city called Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is literally the most immigrant first. Gen- if you ever pick a city in Massachusetts of the first generation immigrant from Central America and Latin America, it's Chelsea, Massachusetts. Those voices were not being seen in places. They weren't being spoken to. They weren't given the mic. And we continued to pursue that. And the only way we kind of go past misinformation is by telling those human stories and saying, you know, this is what people are telling us. And when you start hearing that this pandemic decimated Latino, black and brown communities and other underrepresented communities, you have to ask yourself why, right? And how did we miss this story? We didn't miss it. I'm talking about when you see the, the major narrative of COVID in the United States, Is it a black and brown issue? It was always much more privileged because in the space of white male newsrooms, they don't know those communities. Mm
4: -hmm.
6: And then when they tried to do it, it was like, let's just parachute in. We were able because we knew the communities were able to report very quickly on it. We need (laughs) to like elevate. All these voices, whether it's bloggers or people that are sharing, um, you know, factual information on Twitter in Spanish or in other languages, it's our responsibility as journalists to be like, this matters to my community. I need to share it. I need to elevate and amplify it because that's the only way you really fight it.
3: Well, and you're talking about a narrative shift, right? That's occurring across all media platforms right now. I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show here. It's happening on TV, it's happening in movies, it's happening in radio and podcasts and essentially everywhere. We're seeing more folks critically investigating and reconfiguring, which are both much needed changes. Who gets to tell whose story and and whose stories are being told and uplifted and why? So my question for both of you is, what do you think it is about the power of storytelling and uplifting stories that allows for this narrative shift to occur? And why is it important to focus on the stories and the storyteller? And Maria, what are your thoughts? Wow. I mean,
5: great question. Yeah, I feel like in so many ways, particularly for Latinos and Latinas, our history in this country is in, for all intents and purposes, invisible. Imagine what would happen if we were taught that apart from the indigenous languages that were spoken here first, that the first language that we know of, other than those indigenous languages that were spoken, was actually Spanish. When the Spaniards arrived to St. Augustine in Florida and the second settlement also spoke Spanish, it was Santa Fe. So, you know, imagine if we were actually learning the history. O sea, de que aquí se hablaba español. Primero que inglés. Then people might just be like, okay, well, wow, I guess I have to kind of rethink American history. Now, if you fast forward that to what we're doing now, in a lot of ways, I mean, I do feel like I, I kind of go into outer space talking about this because <laughs> yeah. I do, because I'm just like, okay, basically. I like it. Like, I'm a democracy junkie, okay? Like, I believe in representative democracy, which means multiracial, true representation. And so when I'm asking people their stories or putting their stories on our air, I feel like it is an act of saying, your voice matters. You are an essential part of American history. These are not Latinos. I mean, they are, but they're not Latino stories or immigrants. They're American stories. This is American history. And so, especially for Latinos and Latinas, there's a lot of shame that is still in our communities. I mean, for example, I was on the air in Detroit earlier this week. And it's like when I was in Detroit right before the shutdown, I was hearing from Latinos, Mexicans who were deported from Detroit in the 1930s. So it's like, so we have been here. And the act of telling the stories and asking people to tell their stories and how did you get there? How did you get here? Y como te fue? To me, it is an act of saying your voice matters. Your story matters. You matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I'm lucky, like this morning when I ended up talking to a Mexican delivery guy from Puebla for 20 minutes, out, you know, after <laughs> she boxing. She does you know, this all the all, time. All this the time, is my hero's like, life. I was like, bro, ¿y tú te quedas aquí? If they gave you a chance, you know, would you? He's like, pues, you know, he thought about it. And he was like, pues sí, yo me quedo, está mejor. Because, of course, he's a New Yorker now. And then when I leave him, I, you know, he's 25 years old, the, the age of my son. And I can't help but be that mom. Y pongo la mano en la espalda. And I'm like... Patting him on the back, and I'm like, Bueno, mijo, you got this. Que se cumplan tus sueños, porque tu voz, tú eres el futuro. No se te olvide. You may feel invisible, pero oyeme, you, I just saw you. We spent half yeah. an hour talking, and you matter. And that to me is, again, this deeply like, so believe in your voice, believe in your power. When you can, go register to vote so we can make sure, because, you know, Latinos are the second largest voting block in the United States.
0: Yeah, and there's a major paradigm shift when it comes to how we capture stories, how we develop them, and, you know, what voice tells it. And uh, I think that we are at a very, very interesting crossroads when it comes to uh, storytelling. They've understood that they can no longer do it without us. They can't just take our stories and then amplify them the way that they saw it when they encounter it, right? You know, and, and I come full circle to to the sentiment and to this great conversation, which I'm very grateful that... Uh, you both have been able to really dive so deep into this because when I think about how it started in the pandemic, you talk about the critical experience that we as a community were going through wasn't really necessarily manifested in the news. You know, they were reporting at us in the sense that like, oh, this is the percentage of Latinos or African-Americans or people of color that get hit harder with COVID. But the reason why it wasn't relevant for us or wasn't even that much more alarming when it came to when you asked a Latino, how do you feel about that data? It's because they'd never met a Latino that actually told them, hey, the reason why it hits us is because, you know, this is how we cook and this is how much, you know, how much more voluptuous my dad is that he's not super for his height. I, I talk about this, you know, a few times on the show because my dad got COVID, you know, and he had you know, a minor heart attack um, before that. And, you know, so put him in a, in a very vulnerable place and therefore, you know, he's also not tall enough for how voluptuous he is, right? (laughs) So therefore, he's now double the most vulnerable, right? So, you know, and people were wondering like, why is it hitting Latinos? Because nobody was saying that. It was just like, it's hitting Latinos harder. It's hitting people of color harder. You know what I mean? So the point of this and the point of bringing this anecdote is the fact that there was no relativity in media when it came to how do we get to our communities, so they are not just informed, but they're ignited to put it in action. And uh, therefore, we got hit. You know, we got hit in many, many ways. But also, ways. there's
5: distrust. And that's part of what's happened, is that you have nos aislado? you've isolated us, you've targeted us, you know, we can't even go to the police because you'll probably take us and deport us. And so everything, you know, do we answer the census? We don't even know if we should answer the census, even though, you know, many of us did and we are fully half of the population growth that happened in the United States over the last 10 years was because of Latinos and Latinas getting it on inside the country, not immigration. <laughs> and there's this <laughs> other thing, which is really, you know, our need in among Latinos and Latinas to be social, we have that too. And sometimes it can be a little bit um, irresponsible, la verdad. O sea, we're going to get the family together, come hell or high water, because we've got this going on, you know, un bautizo, un, you know, And we have all lost family because of that. I lost family because of that. And so you're right. It's kind of like, how do we meet people where they are at and take into account, you know, like the black community, there is distrust about institutions, the government, et cetera, et cetera.
0: And I think more often because they don't see themselves in community with them, right? I mean, like you said, we we don't have enough congressmen. We don't have enough senators. We don't have enough governors or mayors that really speak to the community in a more relatable manner.
6: And then when we do, we put all our hopes on the shoulders of that person. And no person as fabulous as they are is going to answer everything to the community because in the end, you know, the monolith, even though we've always said we're incredibly diverse, And on so many levels, we're still painted with this broad brush so that, you know, the Latinos have a riot. It's the same type of thing going over and over again, which is why we got to continue to push through as much as it's frustrating. But if you're doing it with this mission of saying there's something bigger here that we're all going to help push this forward. And, you know, we might not get to the end line, but we're going to pass the baton and I think we become more and more informed generation by generation. So I'm incredibly hopeful to see more awareness each and every day. And I notice it even in the workings that we do as journalists. And there has been a change, but there's a lot more that needs to get done.
0: Is there a word, is there a message you want to give to those future journalists when it comes to the direction, the tone, where we're we going and, and the things that are at stake, them? Is there solutions, thoughts, you know, advice that that you can lend to those future voices?
6: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I wish I told myself as a young journalist, and I actually learned it from Maria just and having the privilege of working with her daily, is is to bring joy into into the work that you do. And I've been really conscious of trying to transmit the joy to others at Futuro, where it's like, yeah, we all work really hard. It's a grind, but we love this, right? And you need to have time to appreciate what you have, but also to take care of yourself. And I think one of the things that us living, who've had the privilege of looking at the last two years in the pandemic and being like, it's okay to take care of yourself. It's not weakness. You're not missing out on anything. You can take a pause. Not every story needs to get covered. We're not competing. you know. And I think that's that balance of, and finding this ability to see joy in the work that we do. So I tell people out there, be joyful and take that risk. Right. I know it sounds really like, Oh, well, you're the old dude telling us this, you know, blah, 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 you know, empty nester, you know, but I think you have two people here who took risks. You know, I, I saw a need to exactly challenge that narrative when I was like unemployed 10 years ago to challenge that and say, like, I'm done. I'm going to go after people that are getting this wrong. And that's where Latino Rebels was born. And all of a sudden people are like, oh, wait, I don't need to seek permission to call people out that are misrepresenting our community because these guys are doing it. Great. You know, and so I took that risk and and I've been just so privileged that Maria saw that as saying, like, you have – agency and come work at Futuro. So those are the two things, joy and risk-taking. But I know Maria has more infinite wisdom than I do
5: <clears> when it comes to this. I was going to say the opposite. My message to young <sighs> journalists out there is actually no se me agüiten. Like, this is mm. tough. And so I need you to be prepared to understand the toughness of it. And so... I do always think about Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, someone who people don't really know. Her name is Jovita Idar from El Paso, Mexican-American, just like me, badass journalist, Texas Rangers tried to shut down her newspaper at the turn of the century, Ruben Salazar. You know, to me, understanding that my work as an American journalist is part of that long arc of being a journalist of conscience in this country. Mm. So to the young ones, I say, mira, todo es difícil. It's all scary. It's all hard. You know, whatever it's, a, if it's an audition or you have to write your force piece or it is scary. But if you are my student, it's because you've pushed yourself, you know, this yeah. far, you got it, you can do it. And so I'm just like, go, keep on going. And if you look at many of the staff at Futuro Media, They don't come from a kind of traditional, you know, high school, college, master's that we actually encourage journalists to apply, especially if they have a kind of non-traditional route, going to community college, starting out as a freelancer, maybe not having a college degree, not having a master's degree. That does not stop you from joining a place like Futuro. And so own your power, own your voice, Get your peeps behind you because you're going to need a crew of peeps. I had my girls. Oh, yeah. I had my squad. girls.
0: Squad. <laughs> I had my
5: squad. So, and my husband, of course, um, and my family. But I'll find the people and it's for the long haul. It, so, no se me Hmm.
3: Be joyful and take that risk. I just keep sitting with those words from Julio. And oh my gosh, what a powerhouse duo for our roundtable. Talk about combating misinformation. I can't think of two better truth tellers. And I'm still pinching myself that I got to talk to Maria and Julio.
0: Yeah, 100%. I'm so glad we could share Ashton's story with them. It is inspiring, right, to hear that they are all on the same page and that Maria had a recent connection to Mississippi as well.
3: And if you don't already subscribe, definitely go check out In the Thick with Maria and Julio, one of my favorite podcasts.
0: All right, Emar, you convinced me. I'll subscribe. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm already subscribed So next week we'll talk with essential worker Christina Franco Abundis Who runs Casa Arcoiris in Tijuana A safe and inclusive space For LGBTQ plus migrants And asylum seekers And we'll have a roundtable discussion With two incredible lawyers Lindsay Toslowski of the Immigrant Defenders Law Center And Emin Dupuy Morris Of the Transgender Law Center
3: Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Alison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel and Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Ashton Pittman, and to our thought leaders Maria Hinojosa and Julio Ricardo Varela. Additional thanks to Gracie Goodman, Alyssa Walker, Raul Perez, and the Futuro Media Group, and Kelsey Jorgensen. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.
2: What the world needs now is positivity. Connecting, relating, and being human together is where it's at. Hi there, honey German, and I know life happens, but trust, you got this. And State Farm got us. It feels good knowing that State Farm agents are there to help you choose the right coverage with great support 24-7. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.